Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay. I've already started the recording, so let me know when you guys are settled. I think we're uh, we're looking rock. pretty yeah. good. This guy has um, a, a gigantic beard, man. I'm just going to stare at this thing. <laughs> I, should, I should put my windscreen between my beard and you, right? I, swear. <laughs> I, I feel like I hit puberty about 30 seconds ago looking at this guy. You know? but so. any, anyway... Well, it's too bad it's not a visual medium we're about yeah, to that's right. I know. I'm yeah. like super Or maybe it's a good thing. I don't know. Is he scary looking? I mean, is he going to like scare children if he walks in a room or something? He looks know. like he builds rockets for sure, man. But, oh. You know, but, okay. but, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm insecure right now looking at this beer. So let's just kick this thing. I'm going to drink some of this beer and kick this thing off. There you go. You go, go for f- it. Okay. This is, this is all yours, Tony. <laughs> Cheers. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Space Junk. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and we are kicking off another week of amateur astronomy, space talk stuff, all the stuff about space we're going to be getting into here in this podcast. And this week, we are going to be talking with a friend of of OPT Telescopes, I guess, um, uh, Hans Frederick Haas. He is an owner of Wavelength Brewing Company, I guess he's down the road from you guys. Is that right, Dustin? Yeah, Hans has been a very close friend of OPT since the beginning. Um, we do a lot of star parties, and that's kind of how the two companies wor- started working together. Hans is um, a brewery owner, uh, makes his own beer, and uh, I mean, the beer is fantastic. Actually sitting here drinking some now. Uh, we'll get into that. But <laughs> there's something very, very unique about his facility and what they're about, and um, that's what makes them such a great partner. They're not the typical brewery. So why don't we just dive in because it's a great yeah. story. And instead of me telling it, Hans, why don't we let you? So welcome to the show. Hans. Hey, thank yeah. you. So let's talk about it. What Describe Wavelengths for the people that don't know what it is. Um, so we are a microbrewery uh, located in downtown Vista. And, um, you know, we are formed around a mission uh, that's uh, probably not very common in the craft beer industry. At least we didn't see it much uh, beforehand. But we do science outreach through craft beer. And uh, basically what, what that means in reality is our tasting room uh, is all about science. Um, we serve everything on site, of course, brew everything on site. Um, but, yeah, our whole mission is science outreach. We definitely are astronomy and uh, space flight heavy, some of our favorite things, the the pretty things that, you know, mm-hmm. shoot out fire from them, always entertaining. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, if, but, it, if uh, it goes well, well with beer, right, I mean, right exactly. which is mainly rockets, it, and, you know, controlled explosions. Yeah. Like uh, well, yeah. see, now I would have thought I would have thought chemistry would have been a natural science that you would have highlighted, but it's just yeah, you went from you went from space, you went to you went for the space side of it. Huh? <laughs> yeah, well, we actually. Um, so one of the things we do, uh, we do a Friday night science talk series every Friday at eight p.m. Um, and we actually have a really great chemist that presents there on the regular. Uh, his name's uh, Professor Shane Haggard from SD City College. Uh, super entertaining, does some demos. Um, we always make jokes in the middle of his presentations when he's going to do a demo. I'll come up the side of the stage and put a fire extinguisher next to him. So it's a <laughs> running yeah. joke about uh, the chemistry of rockets that he did once, talk-wise. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as the beer goes... Um, you know, I always say without good science, you cannot make good beer. So it's organic chemistry. It's uh, physics, thermodynamics. Um, you know, it's an involved process. It's even biology, isn't it? Absolutely. Because of the yeast. I'm relying uh, on those yes. little guys. So it's, a, it's an interesting place, though, because when you go, I mean, it's downtown Vista has a lot of microbreweries. But when you go into Wavelength, instead of seeing any sports, I've never seen a sport on any of the. Mass- yeah, we actually don't have a uh, TV at all. No, no yeah. cable TV, nothing. It's just all you see on the screens, which are everywhere, um, is, 
you know, different science experiments. They, uh, they show the, the SpaceX launches live. Um, like, like Hans said, every Friday you go in there and instead of just sitting in and talking to whoever you're with, I mean, it's built out like it would be at a university where you're going to listen to an astrophysicist come in and give a talk on space or, you know, a professional chemist come in and give a talk on chemistry. And I mean, this place gets packed for this. It's like people are starving for this type of experience and information. And um, I mean, it's such a unique idea. So obviously we fell in love with it and we keep um, scopes there and you yeah. know, while people are inside doing that, other people are outside on the curb. There are big, I mean, 14, even a 20 inch telescope set up that people can like, this is a 20 inch go-to dob that people can, you know, they're drinking their beers and going outside, looking at the moon or the planets, or even some, you know, deep space objects through a 20 inch telescope, you know, as just part of the free experience of wavelength. Think about that. Like this idea is amazing. <laughs> Well, thank you. And yeah, one of the great things about uh, microbreweries and tasting rooms that's a little different from a bar or something, if you were to try to do the same thing, uh, is it's family friendly. Um, it's all ages in there. So Even dogs. I've seen yeah, dogs in there. That's right. Oh, wow. Yeah, you let they dogs can't in drink too. either. So, uh, yeah, we do. <laughs> and, um, but it's really great because, you know, folks will come in for a talk or some beer and uh, they get to go outside and look through a, a, a pretty awesome telescope courtesy of OPT. And for a lot of folks, you know, they've just walking down the sidewalk of downtown, maybe they haven't looked through a scope that big. So when you see the moon or the planets or something that big, it really makes a big impact on them. So it's real cool to have the sidewalk astronomy as, as part of it that we do with OPT. Well, yeah. Well, help. Go ahead. People got so into this and we were getting such great feedback from just the, the local star parties that we were doing there. I remember, you know, we did one for the super moon. There was a line wrapped around the building of people for two different scopes we brought to come view the supermoon um, there. Yeah, in, that was you know, nuts. I, I think, was it on a Sunday night or a Monday Yeah, night? I mean, there were yeah. so many people. And the people, after they, you know, after they looked, would stop and they wanted to talk for like the next 20, 30 minutes about these <laughs> things. And, you know, it was great. It was like people were so enthusiastic about what they were seeing that Hans – Excuse me. Hans and I started talking and um, we decided to build an observatory. And if you log into, you know, the most used, actually the one that almost all of my images come from, uh, it's actually called the Wavelength Observatory. <laughs> and we log into it remotely from Wavelength and show people deep space through a 17 inch plane wave. I mean, this is something you'd find, you know, equivalent to most university systems. Yeah. Now, you do, you, do you level. do this at the brewery while people are watching or how does, how does that yeah. work? Yeah. Yeah. We have, um, we have a big projection screen and a bunch of TVs around the tasting room and, uh, we'll just remotely operate it and put, put one of the nest cameras up. The, the most fun is you get a room full of people and get the screen up and everyone likes to do a big countdown for rolling the roof off of, uh, of the yeah. scope and, uh, what yeah, a and then great just image idea. from what the tasting fun. room. Yeah, it's a blast. Yeah, so you're sitting there drinking beer with your friends and watching. I mean, how big is that screen? 12 feet? Yeah. It's like 12 feet across the front <laughs> of the thing. And so, yeah, you see on one side of it, you see the building changing, the roof rolling off the building. And on the other side, you see, you know, the scope is moving and then they're live comes in images off this massive system you know and so it really is an awesome experience it's a lot better i think than sitting there watching the kardashians move around or like you know <laughs> oh, so, well, yeah <laughs> so, yeah well let me get this straight so I, I am about as far away from you as i can be and still be in the united states so i'm like three thousand <laughs> miles away i know southern california i've been i've been to uh, uh california many many times you're in Carlsbad, both of you, right? Yeah, right now we are. Um, but our brewery's in downtown Vista. Which uh, is next so, door. Yeah. Okay, I mean, that's what I'm trying over. to get a sense of. How far right. away are your two business? How far away is OPT from Wavelength? 10 miles, maybe? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so you're in the general close. area. Now, is because I'm not familiar with that exact area, is there a university nearby or any kind of higher education thing nearby? Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, Cal State San Marcos is uh, just down the road from us, uh, Palomar College. Um, and we've been real fortunate, actually. We got a lot of our Friday night speakers, our uh, local professors um, from Cal State San Marcos in particular. Um, okay, but people come from, you know, 
four hours, five hours away to come to some of this. Yeah, that that always blows my mind. We'll get people from North LA, and they're just like, "Yeah, we planned a weekend down here because we mm-hmm. heard about the science brewery." Like, oh my well, god! Well, that's kind yeah. of where I was going with this because I, I I get a sense that you guys you're not in a center of like you know Stanford no, or something. So look, you're you know you Vista got... is not a tech hub, Let's right? Be and so that. here you are. <laughs> In the middle of a place not necessarily known for being a science or technology hub, and yeah. you're doing this and getting great interest out of it. That's that's what's remarkable to me. That people are just you know they're just flooding about flooding your 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 uh, your brewery so that they can you know learn new things. I think that's amazing. That's really quite astonishing. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean it's exciting to to see the response it's getting and. I always felt like it was an idea that we'd, we'd find out real quick. It was either going to flop real fast or do mm-hmm. great. <laughs> do it yeah, well, if you were going to fail, you were going to fail fast. Yeah, well, for well, sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I love I love telescopes. I love the fact that you're doing them. Nobody loves a 20-inch go-to daub more than I do, but I also <laughs> love beer. So I need yeah. to hear a little bit about the kind of beers you brew. Yeah. Um, so one of our mottos when it comes to the beer program is uh, full-spectrum brewing. And uh, that's basically that. just a, ner- a nerdy way of saying uh, we like to make it all. So light, dark, um, IPAs, of course. Uh, I think we'd get kicked out of San Diego if we didn't make a bunch of IPAs. You would. Yeah. Um, Pitchforks. Light beers, sours, um, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, we just did a big big upgrade in our brew house. Uh, so we're putting out a lot more beer now. And I've uh, been real happy with the beer program. Uh, today I brought one of our flagship beers. It's a a red ale that we brew with uh, some dried hibiscus in it. Um, wow. So what's, big what's roasted multi base. It's called Redshift. Redshift. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta love it, don't you? Uh, hey, I cheers. do. Cheers, I, Hans. I totally love. The- oh, stop it. Okay, <laughs> that was oh, for you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> we got to do something about this two thousand, three thousand mile gap here, so I can. I, You're the I one. I got to get there. You chose Florida, man. We all make I mistakes. Did. I, come well, on, I this is Southern you. California. I didn't know you then, Dustin. So <laughs> <laughs> when I chose yeah. it. Oh. Okay, well, uh, what are some of the other uh, names of some of your brews? Obviously, I think you've gone pretty scientific on some of these. Yeah, yeah, and there are uh, a lot of science names, a lot of nerd culture. Um, our most popular IPA is Hop Squanch, a little nod to the Rick and Morty fans. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got a, a super dark stout called Infinity Stout, um, Mirkwood Session IPA, a little Lord of the Rings. Oh, love there. I love it. Oh, that is um, nerdy. That is yeah, very nerdy. Yeah, so we, yeah, we go far and wide with uh, the naming. It. It's not strictly science. I lived for 30 years in Boulder, Colorado, and I always thought Boulder was the mecca of craft beers. Uh, the Boulder Brewing Company was my favorite, and they, the most scientific beer until today that I had ever heard of was uh, Planet Porter, and they had, uh, a porter that had a telescope on a little Newtonian six inch um, telescope on it. And uh, I really liked that beer. That was a lot of, that was a very good beer, but it sounds like you've taken this to an entirely <laughs> new level. Yeah, we, uh, we go pretty deep with it. We actually made a fun little beer. Um, it was just a little batch where we took our really strong stout and uh, steeped it with some uh, Carolina Reapers, which are a very, very hot pepper. And uh, we would only serve it in tasters. We only made five gallons of it. Um, but it had one of my favorite names. We called it Heat Death of the Universe. <laughs> and we thought that was uh, an appropriate warning for, right. for that type of beer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so your brewery is on premises, it sounds like. You've got you've got the vats yeah. and everything right there. It, everything's yeah. right there under one roof. Uh, we brew it in the back and uh, pour and it, it and sounds- talk, talk science in the front. And you sounds like you do your normal runs of beer, like Redshift or whatever the crap, the ones you're known for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do those all the time, but then you also set up. It sounds like to do smaller experimental beers, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we How have do you come up with five ideas? Flagships. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, part of it is just talking and working with other brewers, and um, part of it's just availability of uh, you know ingredient wise um, of what we discover. Um, but I used to homebrew a long time, uh, for a long time before this. Um, so I had a pretty good, uh, backlog of recipes that I had developed and, you know, not everything translates direct or directly going from 10 gallons to you know 500 gallons. But, um, yeah, there's, uh, enjoy a ton of varieties. Um, 
we have a little bit of a barrel program going on as well. So we're barrel aging a little bit of beer. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. What's the, and what's that? Wouldn't you say you? How's that different than other brewing? Um, yeah, I mean, you you can take uh, wine barrels or whiskey barrels or or just a a raw char brand new barrel and uh, lay a lay a beer down in it for half a year up to two or three years maybe even. And wow, it really? Up, it's yeah, it's kind of like doing whiskey. Um, picks up a lot of characteristics of the barrel and whatever alcohol was in there prior. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty awesome, but it's investing a lot of time for. You know, sure. 50 gallons mm-hmm. of beer. Yeah. Well, beer, beer is the one thing that actually, well, like, I guess until this uh, is not really known for getting better with age. You generally want to drink it as quickly as you can, not as quickly, but soon after it's bottled. Yeah. Certain, certain styles, uh, Belgian beers and really high alcohol beers. Um, if they're barreled without being oxidized, um, they, they can spend a year or two in a barrel and come out great. So would you say that people come for the beer and stay for the science or come for the science and stay for the beer? <laughs> um, it's a bit of both, honestly. Um, and it's it's always entertaining. I, I start all the Friday night talks with basically telling everyone, you know, kind of what the deal is from the, from the get-go because some folks are in there just Friday night out having beers. Mm-hmm. And they walk into a science brewery and had no idea that a astrophysicist was about to do a presentation. Um, you know, so I just say, welcome to Wavelength. This is what we're about. And, uh, that's the cool part. Cause you get a lot of converts that way. Folks that, you know, never, it's, it's great to have people going there as a destination, but it's also great to just have random people from the public get turned on to science by, by walking into a brewery. That well, definitely happens there too. You see a lot of that. Yeah. Well, that's what I love about this idea is that I'm always stressing about how can I get outside the bubble? How can I do science communication without talking to the same people all the time. And this is one of, this is a great avenue for that. Um, you must reach hundreds, if not thousands of people a week uh, that may not otherwise know what, you know, the heat death of the universe even means. So <laughs> uh, that's amazing. That's really remarkable. It definitely gets people to Google things. And I've done a couple of talks there and people that just, yeah, they, they come in just because they were walking between the other breweries and they just want to see what's going on. And um, after the talks, I've had people come up and they're like, I don't really know what you were talking about, but um, tell me more about <laughs> those pictures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, where where can I Google this or where can I see that? And that's it. Wow. It worked. That's yeah. exactly what this should lead to. So I think yeah. it uh, it really is an amazing thing. And we, we do a lot together. But you know what's funny is I've actually caught a lot of flack about this. I don't know if you have, but even on some of the forums, we've had to laugh here at OPT. Um, when we first started doing it, there were some of um, some of the more traditionally minded people about how star parties should be done and things that, mm-hmm. that were really upset that we were doing this because they were like, Oh, now you're going to teach people they should be doing astronomy in the cities instead because we did this. And then, you know, the Times Square thing right after they're like, oh, you're convincing people they should be doing astronomy in the cities. And that's not (laughs) what it's about. And then they're going to want to go to the desert and they're going to ruin all our star party locations. And oh, man, get off my lawn. And then, you know, they said something that (laughs) I really stop it, you kids. Yeah. I'll be calling the cops. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they were very upset and they even yeah. emailed me directly. And then um, I saw one of them ended up saying something really funny that I, I really appreciated. And he was he was trying to talk shit, but it was perfect. And he's like, you know, really expensive telescopes and drinking beer. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> that's, yeah. that's pretty good. That's pretty yeah. good, actually. You know, yeah. like yeah. if you're going to go online and talk shit about something that's a waste of time, at least you made it really funny. That's yeah. awesome. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's wow. Right. So th- those are curm- curmudgeons then out there giving you giving you grief, uh, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, people don't necessarily like that. You know, change is hard for some people with anything. But um you know, yeah, back in my day, I had to learn the night sky. I had to know <laughs> yeah. where the constellations oh, were. Man. Yeah, now we, you we kids can on. just punch buttons and see the Crab <laughs> Nebula. You know, That's... it's amazing because I've talked to these people on the phone, and it sounds just like you right now. <laughs> like, was this you, man? <laughs> <laughs> Little do you know, yeah. I'm a I'm a star party <laughs> troll. I go to star parties and I troll them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right. back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> our party troll like that's a thing okay all right 
Okay, well, um, so this is your day job, Hans, but yeah. is, I'm told by Ian and, and Dustin and others at OPT, well, no, that's just those two, uh, that you were also quite knowledgeable about spaceflight and rockets, and, and you are you know quite a bit about what's going on in our private space program. Uh, yeah, yeah, big fan of uh, spaceflight in general, uh, but uh, private or commercial space and uh, SpaceX in particular um, you know, it's it's a real exciting time to be uh, following that industry and seeing the developments. We're seeing uh, seeing stuff happen at a pace that you know it, it hadn't happened for decades. So, well, it's we, true that it's questions. questions. Yeah, we've got questions for you then. <laughs> yeah, it's well, true. I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I should probably explain the the depth of my nerdiness. Um, so, I'm actually uh, an admin on a, a big Facebook group. That's a SpaceX enthusiast and new new space enthusiast group. Um, we have about forty five thousand members, and uh, it's really cool. We have a lot of actual aerospace engineers in there, and it's more of a technical group. Um, but I've been involved with that for a while, and yeah, just space flight is super exciting. There's there's no end to to how far you can get into it. Well, listen, man, my timer right now says 20 minutes and 15 seconds we've been talking. There's not one of our listeners that assumes you're not a nerd, right? <laughs> yeah. After yeah, 20 minutes, they, too far in for that, they right? know you're a nerd. Yeah, you don't <laughs> have to sell it at all. And if they're so, still listening by now, they are also nerds. <laughs> and they're in with us. Exactly. They're, they're, they're in it with us. Yeah. So we're here. We are, we are cocooned in <laughs> our nerdiness. Right. So yeah. here's the thing. I know that we are, this is exciting times. We've got Elon Musk launching things all over the place. We've got Jeff Bezos. We've got uh, Richard Branson. All We live in the golden age of billionaire space entrepreneurs. And yeah. so my question to you then is, is over, it's overarching here. Of the three big billionaires that are getting us into space, which is your favorite? Um, You know, I'm a fan of the one who I think has gotten the most done. So definitely Elon Musk and SpaceX. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a funny thing because people tend to think of SpaceX or Tesla or any of those companies as just, there's Elon Musk, that's the company. Um, but SpaceX yeah. is now over 6,000 employees strong. And uh, they're they're headquartered out of L.A., but they have a lot of other facilities. And at, at this point in time, the amount of collective experience all those engineers and all those technicians have um, from Falcon 9 and, and the success it's had literally landing boosters and making it look routine. Um, you know, I, I think they're uh, they're the most exciting and, and definitely getting the most done right now. So well, let me get the uh, the quick elevator pitch of the top four that are kind of happening. And we'll, we'll put the public one in as well, because I don't really know what the missions of each company are or exactly where they're at at the moment yeah. with those missions. So can you run me through the differences, just the quick differences between SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin, and NASA? Um, yeah. I mean, so SpaceX, uh, they operate the Falcon 9. Um, it flies uh, commercial resupply missions to the space station. Uh, it flies a lot of just straight commercial satellite launches. It's currently doing um, both. Currently doing that. Okay. Yeah, Successfully. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, I think they're, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing because launch success rates, um, you know, were a pretty easy thing to track because a company might launch, you know, like maybe nine times a year would be a lot, you know? Right. Uh, I think last year SpaceX set a record and, and you know, had dozens of launches. So um, it's hard to keep track, but they, they've had great success. Um, Falcon Heavy as well had its test flight. It has two launches scheduled this year, um, so it'll be cool to see that fly. And then, of course, they're working on a um, super heavy lift vehicle and Starship uh, to go to Mars. So they're doing a ton of stuff and um, have real big plans. Uh, compared comparatively, um, you have the other companies like Blue Origin. Right. Uh, it's a funny thing. They've been real slow and steady. Haven't lo- put anything into orbit yet. They have the new Shepard. It's a um, a single stage rocket that basically goes up past the Kármán line. It's going to release a capsule. Uh, space tourists um, who paid a bunch of money will be in it, and you get like ten or fifteen minutes of weightlessness and come back down. This is the owner of Amazon doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So his whole thing is to. I mean. That's his model then is to take paying customers up, like the actual people themselves, not just missions to get things from A to B. Uh, yeah. And that's, but that's just this first vehicle is basically just a development vehicle for a full on orbital class rocket uh, called New Glenn. 
So they're in the middle of building New Glenn, hasn't flown yet. It's still a ways out from flying. Well, I want to go. I want to be weightless. What does that cost? What's a ticket for me to go cost? I'm trying to remember what the Blue Origin pricing is. Um, I think it's over $200,000 a ticket. Okay. Um, But you basically have Blue Origin and you have Virgin Galactic doing the actual suborbital space flight. Okay. So both of them Um, are doing the same thing at that. uh, Yeah. Through different ways. Sure. Uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, Richard Branson. That's the one I've heard of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. They they have a space plane. Uh, Blue Origins is more of a capsule, traditional rocket style. Sure. Um, But the space plane can carry seven people and uh, it actually flies out of Mojave right now uh, for all the testing. Um, but it's carried people above the Carmen line several times now. Or not, I apologize, not Carmen line. So there's a funny thing, and Tony, you um, you might have heard of this, the definition of where the edge of yep. space begins. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's like seven different definitions for it. And mm-hmm. whichever fits your, uh, your your marketing needs more is usually the one these companies pick. Right. Um, yeah, the Carmen line's the one he's got to worry about. That's the one that Richard Branson has to worry about. He hasn't gotten uh, well. There you yet. know, it's funny. I, yeah, and but they've said they've gotten to space because right. Um, the FAA, the Air Force, they consider fifty miles to be the edge of space. I know, or eighty-two it, kilometers. It's all an asterisk. It's still right. doesn't count until you go into the real space. Right. And that's so, what, what makes it real space, though? I, I don't know these things. Tom. Well, it, it, you know, like Han says, it's arbitrary. Uh, the varying definitions depending on who, but I think. Uh, you know who you're talking to, but I think the uh, the Carmen line is the one that the most of the world has decided is actually the, the dividing line for space. Yeah, it's definitely the widest uh, accepted one. So below that, though, you're still weightless. You're floating. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, and you can get weightlessness in atmosphere. Um, well, I don't just mean by like you know the up down yeah, the, whatever the, the, it vomit, is. Comet, the vomit comet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean that. I right. mean where you're just cruising and you are floating. Like right, I noticed that space. most of the time on Earth, I don't float. So if I'm floating, I'm in space. That that would be where my line is. If I'm coming out Pretty of my close seat, correlation. Yeah, I'm in space, <laughs> even if that's you know whatever wherever that is i mean if that's 50 miles up i feel like you know we can pretty much say we're in space guys like we're floating right now i notice you're not even in your seat anymore you're in space yeah but it's so definition wise it's really interesting because um you know 82 kilometers then is this lower kind of newly accepted definition among some groups but if you were to go 70 kilometers in space as far as your experience goes you're you're going to feel like you're in space. You're going to mm-hmm. massively see the curvature of the earth. Uh, you have a black sky. Wait, the, um, the earth is curved. <laughs> I promise. We're not talking about that here. A, a, <laughs> a good friend of mine told me so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's controversial. Uh, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, um, but there are other <laughs> that just broke tony <laughs> yeah it is oh lord yeah uh, we get some interesting folks every now and then coming yeah. into wavelength who look around at the space stuff and have some some interesting ideas that That's they right. heard about on youtube all right all right <laughs> we'll just leave it at that yeah, um, but there's it. even other definitions of space uh so nasa during the shuttle program they considered the edge of Earth's atmosphere to start at 122 kilometers because that's where they start to see the effects on the shuttle during reentry. Okay. Um, so, you know, like I was saying before, really just which definition suits your, suits mm-hmm. your needs. And, and I, was just so I, reading, can, I was just reading an article. I, I mean, I was just scanning my news feed, and I read the headline, but I didn't read the article about how that, uh, there's even a study that can justify that the moot is in the earth's atmosphere so it goes sure. that far out yeah no it's it's nuts i mean uh you know the space station yeah, uh, 250 miles up still interacts with the earth's atmosphere uh, it has to do periodic boost maneuvers to bring its orbit back up um, but then on the other hand if 100 kilometers is the edge of space there are actually satellites that have been put into orbit below 100 kilometers up yeah, they, see, and that's why I think it just gets too muddy. If you're saying the moon, I mean, you're outside of the Earth's <laughs> magnetosphere's protection at that point. Like, yeah. like you're way, way outside. That's a bit much. That's why it's like you look over and you're like, fuck, Bill, you are floating right now. <laughs> like, that's in space. You're in We're space. We're definitely not yeah. in Carlsbad anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not on Earth if you're floating out of your seat. I think that should be the definition. Yeah. Yeah, which really translates to can you stay in orbit? Because the only way that you're weightless 
is to be in orbit. In other words, you're falling around the Earth at enough velocity that you're going to stay in orbit. So then you have this you know, problem of the lower the orbit you are, you're in, the faster you need to go, but the more atmosphere you're going to interact with. Mm -hmm. So then you have more drag. Yeah. But then it's, I mean, it's again, dependent on more than one thing, right? Like, like floating isn't, you're just like, Oh yeah, he's floating or he's not. But the floating purely depends on your velocity going around the earth. Well, well, you also, if you're farther enough away from the earth that you're not right. Assuming you're in an orbit of the earth. Yeah. Because, because in orbit, you can achieve it just going a lot faster. Assuming you don't burn up, you could just go a lot faster and be way, way closer. The the lower the altitude, you could just go faster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so then where does, you know, where does it end? Outside earth. (laughs) (laughs) You float. Anyway, anyway. (laughs) So, yeah. So that's uh, that's Blue Origin, and then you said Virgin's mission is similar. Yeah, um, so Virgin Galactic uh, suborbital space tourism again. Right, that's the one uh, coming off the plane. So they fly it, exactly. one plane up, carrying another plane. Yep. That that plane is more of a rocket. Yeah, right. It drops, and then it uses rocket boosters to take it the rest. Yeah, of the way. And it's it's got a really cool engine actually. Um, it's called a hybrid solid. So it uses solid fuel, um, but you can actually throttle it. Um, which is a huge advancement over just a typical solid rocket booster. Yeah, because that's the thing with solids. You can't control solid. Once they start, they're gone. You light it and you're either going or you're... Yeah, you're you're along for the ride. Whereas liquids, you can shut off the valve, right? Exactly. And so this, you have the ability to shut it off because it's this giant core of this dense rubber fuel and they are spraying nitrous oxide on it. So they just stop um, under pressure. Exactly. So you can control that flow mm-hmm. and throttle the engine, uh, which is really, really cool. Um, yeah. And then Branson's other operation is Virgin Orbit. Right. So a similar approach, but actually orbital um, payload delivery services. So launching small satellites, they're going to carry it um, up to 35, 40,000 feet with a plane again uh, and then airdrop the rocket uh, to put a payload in orbit. So kind of similar to Pegasus. Um, okay. Yeah. Orbital just, ATK's rocket, uh, which barely ever flies. We just got invited by Virgin Orbit. I didn't realize it wasn't the same thing as Virgin Galactic. Right. Different company, but, you know, same overall umbrella. Yeah. To come out and, you know, tour the facility and see Killer. the rocket. Yeah. But I thought I was going to go see the plane. Honestly, I didn't realize it was two different things. So, uh, so Virgin Orbit then is more traditional rockets, mm-hmm. right? And their function is what? Uh, just small payload delivery. That's it. Yeah. And there's, there's certain advantages to using a plane. Uh-huh. Um, it's got to be way more efficient, right? Uh, I mean, you're really limited in payload size. So n- none of these systems, um, airdrop systems like that, could compete with a, a heavy lift vehicle like like Falcon 9 or, right. or Falcon Heavy. Yeah. Um, but uh, the cool part about a plane is, you know, what if there's bad weather over here? We're just going to fly over there. Yeah. Uh, once you're in the air, you can pick any direction you want to drop, generally, as long as your range is clear. So whichever orbit you want to put the vehicle in, you just can fly that course, yeah, yeah. drop it, fire. Getting into space is a lot less dramatic, right, than setting up on a few pads that are around the country, you know, making it this huge, you know, yeah. <laughs> launch uh, where, you know, things can go wrong, things blow up on the pad. You're just launching. You're just flying yeah, the, an airplane. The smaller scale, uh, you know, the rocket, the, the safety margins for that kind of stuff sure. definitely drop. Um, but again, this is like... I'm trying to remember off the top of my hand of what their goal is. Um, it might be like a half ton to orbit. Yeah. You know, pretty pretty small by comparison to most boosters. Uh, New Glenn, Falcon 9, and then NASA's uh, SLS rocket are lifting many, many, many times more. So let's talk about that because that's the three big private companies. You yeah. have Virgin, you have uh, Amazon's owner, yep. which Blue is Blue Origin. Origin, and then obviously Elon Musk, who has made right. all of this really. I mean, I feel like he set the pace for everyone yep. and uh, made it, you know, as aggressive as the competition is, you know. Just yeah, and there's a ton it. of new small uh, startups yeah. that are doing amazing things. Well, there, um, there will be. It's the modern railroad. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, Rocket Lab, a New Zealand company, they've had a ton of success. Uh, Firefly, there's, yeah, just a ton of little startups going on. Yeah. So let's talk about the big one because NASA is bigger than all of these combined. Yeah. And so what uh, what are the current things going on with NASA? Tony, you can probably speak on this too. 
because I, I don't really I don't really know the current NASA missions. Yeah, they, are... well, so the SLS, the Space Launch System, is and the United Launch Alliance is not designing reusable rockets, and so they cannot compete really with uh, with what SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing as far as reducing costs to get things up into space. They're hamstrung, though NASA is, in my opinion, because they have been mandated by Congress to build this non reusable rocket. Uh, system. And that to me, um, I don't know, it's just a waste. Um, It's an impressive rocket system. And it's already behind schedule and over budget, as you would expect with most uh, things like this that are being driven by Congress. But uh, the goals keep changing what they want it to do and what the capabilities are. So I don't know how much SLS is ever going to compete with these private companies because they've spent most of their time in reducing costs uh, in developing technologies that reduce costs and making these things reusable, whereas SLS is going to be thrown away. Yeah. What am I missing? Because I don't understand why, um, why we stay with these models, you know, like traditional rockets. Once somebody has an idea that clearly works, you know, so like I understand why it started there, but then once innovation, you know, forces the evolution of the concept, why would we stay with something? It's like it's not it's not foolish to take a wrong turn. Yeah. But once you know you've taken the wrong turn, it is foolish to stay on that road. Well, I'm I'm very cynical about this, and I think I think that uh, NASA has always been a pawn for the politicians, and I think that they want whatever is best for their districts. They've all got contracts in their states for certain parts of the SLS. A non reusable rocket is way better, more cost. Um, inefficient so they can they can get more things more jobs things like that they can brag about but i don't see a reason for it either it it really annoys me that they force nasa into this it's it's pretty astonishing when you look at um the actual uh, resolutions and stuff that were passed to create sls i mean they they have verbiage literally limiting the technology to existing shuttle and apollo era yes they can't innovate vendors only yeah yeah, no innovation. So you get SRBs. Um, you can't even design a new engine. You're going to reuse uh, the shuttle engines. Uh, these amazing RS-25s that were just—I mean, some of the most incredible creations of their day. Uh, they're going to now, you know, end up at the bottom of the Atlantic um, because yeah, because it's of the way the program was created. So, I mean, what's the other side of this story, though? There's got to be a reason. Is there really jobs. no reason? Yeah. Just jobs. Just jobs. jobs. It's yeah. and it's political. Polit- uh, across polit- a ton of states. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's by definition inefficient. I mean, it's just the way it's set up, like uh, the old Apollo days, where and and the shuttle days, where <laughs> it was funny because the shuttle was supposed to reduce costs, and it did anything but. It was it ended up being the single most expensive way to get anything into orbit ever. And you, when 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 politicians start getting involved and in saying you will build this using this technology, and you have no choice. That's what is going to kill NASA. It's always been, it makes NASA look bad. It makes them, it sets them up to fail. I can't tell you how many times. And so the SLS, while it's a good rocket, I'm sure it'll be capable. I'm sure it'll do what it says it's going to do. It's going to come at a tremendous cost. No one can compete. What's the huge rocket NASA's building? They're they're doing something uh, comparable to the uh, Falcon Heavy, right? Uh, that would be SLS. Yeah. Oh, that is the SLS. Yeah, yeah. I think um, so. And here's you. the problem: when you talk specs with the, about the SLS, about the rocket, um, they they already have like five versions on paper. Mm-hmm. Not a single one has been built. Um, so when you look at you know payload capability numbers, and they say, oh well, you know block two, you know dash zero of SLS is going to have this amazing exploration upper stage. It can lift this many more times than this other rocket. You know, we could compare paper rockets all day long, um, but you got to look at what is going to be available to support, you know, not only commercial space, because obviously NASA doesn't really care much about that, um, but what can do more science, what can explore, you know, better. And um, a lot of people are advocating saying NASA should not be in the launch business, period. You know, use that huge, amazing budget. I mean, I... I shudder to think of how much is going to be spent by the end of it, but SLS is already in the tens of billions. 
and it's years from flying and it's got a right. bunch of problems. Right. Um, and, how many and not reusable and not reusable. How many Falcon heavy launches, how many new Glenn launches, Delta four, whatever you're putting stuff all over the solar yep. system with that. And then how many payloads does that money pay yeah. for? Um, so there'd be people on the moon again for that, you know, could be. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that, uh, that kind of leads us into the next, now that we, we have a general idea, or at least I have a general idea right. of what these different companies in the NASA are doing. Uh, let's talk about what we kind of started wanting to talk about, which was, um, what's the point of all of this? Like, why are we going to space in the first place? You know, what, you know, I think a lot of people kind of dig into like the moon, you know, right. there, there was a whole, there was a race to get there in the first place. And plus we just wanted to see what happens when you put a man on the moon and there's this, all of this. And then we collected rocks and then people asked the question, so why go back? Right. You know, even, um. You know, I've heard certain politicians, I think it was even the president said, you know, we've already been there. That's that. Right. Let's let's carry on. Um, But I mean, there's a ton of reasons to go back. But I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of different uh, lines of logic you could take to justify it. I mean, what if, uh, you know, settlers go find a new world and go, hmm, trees, stream, this place looks pretty yeah, cool. And we've then seen just all back, this before, right? I've seen trees before. <laughs> you know, who yeah, can, yeah. And we, it's, um, we don't need that. Yeah. So you know, this, I don't know. I, I'd say the most base reason is just the human nature. You know, of why mm-hmm. why do we climb Everest? You know, why do why do we do all these things that aren't uh, aren't necessarily give you the the re- tangible return that some people expect, right? Um, but you know, just for the sake of exploration. And then on top of that, you have developing the ability to get it done leads to all kinds of other tangible effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's plenty of um, great cases that are made for the benefits from all the money that went into the Apollo program. You know, some people go, oh, well, all that was Cold War spending. You know, they wouldn't have been spending that much, but it was really, you know, military competition and whatnot. Um, but when you look at the spinoffs and the benefits, it's massive. Same thing with the shuttle era. Um you know, and now it's a uh, it's a whole new chapter because there's even more reasons uh, that people are coming up with to go to space mm-hmm. with the idea that the cost of launching is going to come down. Um, so now maybe asteroid mining is actually going to be a thing. You know, maybe more research done in zero gravity is going to yield huge benefits. Um, it's just that kind of stuff is really hard to put a put a finger on, you know, because you don't you don't know of these great benefits till they actually happen. Um, one of my, my favorite quotes, uh, from a physicist that worked at CERN, uh, he said when, when radio was invented, it wasn't called radio. You know, there was no radio stations. There was no benefit from having that communication. It's just a, a funny moment in an uh, experiment they were doing with electromagnetic, uh, radiation and frequencies, you know? Um, so it's, it's hard to see ahead of time, all the benefits that could be had, but, um, you know, when you look in hindsight and see what we've been able to do, thanks to investment in technology, it's like, man, what, what if, you know, what if we really made an effort to get to space and, and pursue all these different things? Well, there's other uh, arguments too, for going to space. I mean, the first off, but let me just talk about those spinoffs for a second. If you think for one minute that when, when uh, people like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic start going to space. That they're going to start spinning off their technologies. You can kiss that goodbye. The only the only reason we had spinoffs before was with NASA was involved, and it was a government organization, and it was funded by taxpayer money. And so when they invented something like Velcro or whatever it was they invented, then it became a technology that they could let businesses and corporations have for free which they took and did all kinds of amazing things with. So the spinoff capability was because this was a government endeavor. Now you were switching into billionaire mode where these people are after profits. And if they invent something that's really cool, like how to capture an asteroid and mine it, they're not going to make that available to anybody. So that argument goes out the window, I think, with this private era that we're, that we're entering. And the other argument you always hear is that, well, we need to do this to save humanity. We need to colonize other planets in our solar system to save us from the fact that we're destroying this planet. And that argument isn't compelling to me because I think that that's not, it's not going, first of all, it's not going to save us. I have 
huge rec- reservations about being able to live on Mars safely, uh, for example, or being in space and living up there safely and ever being able to come back to Earth. What's more compelling, and this is why I'm voting for Jeff Bezos as my favorite billionaire to win the race, is that I think he has got the right idea. He says, forget trying to save the planet, forget going to Mars. Uh, you know, all of this stuff is, is, is pie in the sky. Instead, what you do is you move manufacturing and the industrialized component of our civilization off the planet. Put all of the raw material making, the stuff that destroys the earth, like mining and polluting and, and all the you know all the stuff that we're doing to the planet itself, stop doing that here and do that in space, whether it's manufacturing steel or whether it's mining for raw materials. That is the promise of space. Bring that stuff here and let's make our planet pristine. Let's don't do any of it here. And that argument I find not only com- compelling because it makes a lot of sense financially and commercially, but it also is something that we can do robotically and doesn't necessarily involve uh, sending people out to die in space. Unless we do something like what Ray Kurzweil has promised for a long time and develop the ability to put ourselves in non-biological bodies, I think space is going to be fatal to us. So my money's on Jeff Bezos because he, and look at what he did with Amazon. <laughs> he just quietly sold books for a long time. And the next thing you know, he started selling everything else. And then all of a sudden, Amazon became the biggest company and the whole world is eating everybody alive. It's killing retailers, even Walmart's worried. So I don't know. I think his slow, steady, methodical approach and his attitude about not being jumping around to these planets, I think, I think it's going to pay off. And I think he's got the right the right focus on this. Yeah, I've, I've heard his, uh, his proposition to start manufacturing in space. Um, you know, some of the things that come into my mind is how it could be more efficient to launch everything on chemical rockets to orbit, uh, to, to make everything, um, and all the manufacturing on Earth that would need to be done to make these factories in space and whatnot. Um, you know, that that seems pretty pie in the sky to me and energy wise, um, you know, if you move everything to orbit, well, it's all got to get out of this gravity. Well, yeah, and- it does to me too, but I think wouldn't the argument be that you're front loading it that sure you're going to do all of this now, but if you don't do all of this, you're going to have to do all this here forever. And so you're saying, okay, well let's, let's eat the cost now and make these facilities available in space. Well, th- there's definitely benefits to, you know, building things in space mm-hmm. and space infrastructure uh seeing it as a as a path to to save the earth um you know that doesn't make a ton of sense to me no um, and it, it, most it, it won't save the earth and that's that wasn't the argument i was trying to make i was trying to make this idea of getting you're not going to save the earth by going into space but you are going to move a lot of the nasty stuff off of out of space and create an infrastructure that allows entrepreneurs to uh to thrive in space and the example he used and i think this is a good one is the internet uh before the internet came along you couldn't you know the average person in their dorm room could not make a facebook right you needed the infrastructure of the internet to be become to to bring in an entirely new class of billionaires he wants to build a space internet that is a backbone that has infrastructure that allows him to that allows someone like me to have an idea about using space and do it cheaply, uh, which is, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like he couldn't have built Amazon if the post office didn't already exist or if, uh, you know, UPS wasn't already out there. That was already there. It allowed him to build Amazon. So what he wants to do is do that same kind of thing for space, put a backbone there that ordinary people don't have to invest in and can make use of. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, one step towards that, you need reusable rockets Mm -hmm. uh, that can put a lot of weight into space. Um, You know, I think we're going to have that. I think it's going to take quite a while and it won't be just SpaceX. Um, And an interesting thing about the patents and new space, um, you know, as I'm sure you know, all this stuff pretty much falls under ITAR. So it's not really the same situation where a company can choose to release a, ch- a technology. For uh, listeners that don't know, what is ITAR? Uh, International Treaty of, I, I'm forgetting the verbiage, but um, 
basically if it's remotely related to uh, defense mm-hmm. and basically anything on a rocket, um, the government's going to tell you, yes, that's covered by ITAR. Um, it is, it's an export control. To keep those secrets from getting in the wrong hands. Exactly. It's a protective yeah. strategy. It, uh, these companies would be in big, big trouble um, just posting plans you yeah. know, on the internet. You but, can't even take pictures. Like when we toured SpaceX together, yep, remember, exactly. they won't even let you bring your cell phone in because they don't want these other places seeing here's how you make the merlin yeah it's it's a really um it's a huge uh, security burden for these these aerospace companies Mm -hmm. um but that being said uh there's certain things that you don't need to see the patent for to understand right and we're seeing the cause and effect of that um actually arion space just a couple days ago they announced a technology demonstrator that they're going to build and it's a, a first stage rocket with four fold out landing legs. Uh, it has nine uh, engines, uh, same exact configuration as wow. Falcon 9. Yeah. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that Elon actually likes to see. Yeah, he encourages I mean, th- that, right? This is a guy who released the patents. Let's talk <clears> about Tesla. Because Tony just said these are private companies. Yeah. So they're like, and this was your, your argument, Tony, is that, you know, these private companies, if they find something that works that they have that no one else has, like all companies, they're going to keep that. But I mean, this literally just happened where Tesla released all of their patents without having to hang on, hang on. Elon Musk owns all these patents on how to build Tesla electric cars and Falcon nine rockets. And he just made that available to everybody for free. Uh, te- Tesla released a bunch of patents because they're trying to get the industry to switch over to electric. So it makes a lot of sense. No SpaceX patents have been uh, released that are ITAR controlled. Okay. They're not allowed to do Right. It. So I'd be yeah. curious to and know under what conditions. Else, ULA and- I'd be curious to know what conditions these are these are uh, released under because I, I'm sure at any point he can suddenly start deciding making money on it. My, my reason for thinking this, and I know it sounds cynical, is that it's based on the pharmaceutical industry, right? We don't get advances in healthcare and in treatments for diseases unless a pharmaceutical company can make money on it. And in order for them to make money on it, they have to own what they come up with. They even want to patent DNA. And so that's where my thinking is on this, is that companies, when they're suddenly in charge of things, are going to be much more interested in their their shareholders than they are about the public good. So if they develop something that's particularly valuable, like a rocket engine, let's say, uh, and they're, they're going to want to keep it close to their chest, that's my thinking on this. Now, if that's not happening, then I guess I'll, I'll eat my hat. But I'm skeptical. (laughs) The thing is, it's, it's a lot, um, it's, it's a lot deeper than that. Um, and this is actually, um, something that really, really changed the industry is just how, uh, engineers from these cutting edge research teams that are developing things for new space, uh, they get poached, they get poached in a heartbeat. Uh, most of blue origins propulsion team, they're all ex ex SpaceX engineers. Um, so Bezos, cause you know, he's, he's got those deep pockets, right. Mm-hmm. He can pretty much afford whatever he likes. Um, he was poaching key people and yeah, they can't take the exact design with them from one company to the other. Um, but you can't keep this stuff under wraps. You know, they, they take their experience and knowledge with them and the next engine they design for so-and-so is probably going to look a lot like the one that they were working on at the previous company. Um, so, you know, it's, it's going to propagate, um, kind of not in an official manner because of the whole, all the ITAR stuff, but, um, you know, China's developing reusable landers, four legs, nine engines, um, and honestly, it's, it's something that I think people want to see happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, they had a a good idea and it works. Nobody believed it would. I mean, it's like landing a toothpick. Right. on edge you know but it, you see it happen it looks well, and, and, yeah once you see the simple logic and things yeah. i mean that's why they they you know a table has four legs well when we were touring <laughs> spacex remember they were explaining like it looks worse than it actually is because its center of gravity is so low coming yeah. down that it's not really it's not like it looks like these rockets Precisely. landing yeah the center of gravity at is that point the upper part is mostly an empty tank yeah nothing. and all that weight is down low in the off right. web that's where most right. of the vehicle is it's like a pendulum. Um, an empty first stage yeah and an empty first stage weighs just under 30 tons 
and that's a lot. Uh, oh that's yeah, a lot. and over twenty of that is at the base. That's unfueled. Yeah, how much yeah, is your beard weight? How so. much is that beard weight, man? How long is that? Thing? I, I haven't haven't that, measured the density. That thing's uh, got to be eight to... inches long, huh? So that's describe this beard to me. Beard to me. What is it? What, man, are, we, what are we looking at, you, man? Oh lord! When, when he walked in, I had to get insurance for fire hazard here. This thing is like it's a monster, man. Is he like a Jeremiah Johnson looking mountain man kind of thing? There is that what? Yeah, it is? I want to. Okay, I want to patent Hans DNA. This thing is serious. Oh, man. This thing is serious. Yeah, I, I learned a secret that in small business you can free up a lot of time if you just stop shaving and stop getting haircuts. You yeah, know, just let it roll. I can see right? that, man. Yeah, that thing's intense. You don't even have to wear a shirt anymore. You just you're covered. You're covered. You're good. You're good. Tuck it in my belt. You're you know? good. <laughs> no, in the, in the beer industry, they, they tuck kick it you out. in my belt. <laughs> they kick you out if you don't have a, have a big old bushy beard. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I got very, you. Very serious stuff. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, what about, I mean, we're, we're, we're getting low on time, but I, I still want to know about, uh, you know, planetary exploration, like going to Mars. Do you think there's a lot of benefit to us going to Mars? Um, I think it's kind of like those, those other um, exploration endeavors where are you going to get a direct return on, on your money? No, not really. So you're um, not a but... pro let's terraform Mars guy. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Really? And yeah. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of misnomers out there. The, the idea that, uh, oh, let's ditch earth and I'll go live on Mars. It's, this is more of just a plan B, like an insurance thing. It's but an idea. I mean, Why don't we start that process? It just seems to me that, you know, terraforming an entire planet seems a hell of a lot harder than changing the habits of the people on this one. Right. So I think the idea That's is a good both. way to put that, Dustin. Right. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe uh, you have reusable rockets that make it cheap to go to Mars and maybe you also start driving electric cars. Yeah. So you stop yeah. making carbon. I mean, right? I, yeah, no, no, I hear you. And doing both probably is the, uh, is, is a good strategy. It's just terrible. You'd almost want to start an electric car company and yeah. a reusable space company. Well, you, you think know? about the manufacturing that's going to go into an idea like that, but then it's it's like, or you could just tell people like, hey, stop throwing your fucking plastic into the ocean. <laughs> like, stop, yeah. stop. Because I don't want to have to build a planet. If it worked like you know? that, man, we'd, we'd have a lot of things solved. Well, here's another uh, thing. Like, just tell them, knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another thing I think Be Bezos has correct. He's instead of, of colonizing Mars, setting up bases and living there, which is a very hostile environment, very, it's, it's probably worse than being up in, in space. I think where we'll go is these orbiting hotels or orbiting uh, structures in space that can be built in a way that mimics Earth uh, quite a bit with rotations and simulated gravity and environments that are protected from radiation and, and all kinds of things. That, to me, is a, is, a, is a goal that we will achieve way before we get to Mars. And that's why I've always been a proponent of NASA's gateway. Everybody got really angry when NASA proposed this gateway, which was basically going to be this, this uh, structure built in cislunar space where people were going to go and, you know, it was going to be used as a jumping off point for other places like the moon. But you would come back to this point later. I think that makes a lot of sense because these environments can be built and tailored to suit us better than the moon is. Or than uh, the, than Mars is, so I think we're going to get there first, and then maybe we'll certainly have exploration on Mars. We'll land on Mars. We'll walk around on Mars, but we won't live there until we solve some really big problems as far as habitability goes. Yeah, I think one of the big pushbacks on the gateway system was the idea of putting the station in a cislunar orbit. Um, that basically makes it hard to get to from both ends in terms of the energy required. Yeah, but it's all, um, it's a heck of a lot more energy to push something, um, out of earth orbit versus an orbit that say the ISS is in. Yes. Um, you know, so it's, it was that. And then also the way that a lot of those, uh, specs were tailored, it was like, oh, gee, look, looks a lot like the Lockheed proposal that they've been pushing for 20 years. Right. So mm -hmm. it almost smacks more of the SLS, uh, kind of mm. old space. Uh, let's get some new contracts going. Well, right. yes, and, right. yes and no. And I've, and the reason I'm defending this is I have talked to many of the people in hangouts, uh, about that, that are involved directly in this project. And I agree that it does sound like you're a little bit, you know, uh, SLS ish, but you, the, the, 
getting getting there is is going to be hard. Getting off of Earth is hard no matter what. But once you're there, it's all about Delta V, isn't it? It takes a lot less energy to leave there and go somewhere else than it is from Earth to go somewhere else. So starting that as an intermediate point does make some sense, I think, especially in terms yeah. of this Delta V issue. No, that's very true. And in the, um, in the architecture for the next generation SpaceX rocket, which is Starship, um, it relies on in-orbit refueling. Yeah. So the idea is you put it into low-Earth orbit where it's convenient to get back to. Your big, giant, reusable booster flies back to Florida or Texas or whichever site it came from, and then it takes up a tanker. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most recent design of, of Starship architecture, you would refuel from four or five of these tanker launches. Now, it's funny because you know here we are in the current state of things. We think, oh, my God, five launches just to support and fuel up this one Starship to go to Mars. Um, but in a world with regularly reusable rockets, you know, we don't look at five flights of an airliner as anything. And, uh, so it's, you know, that's the interesting part about being at this big transition phase where we can think of limits that used to exist. You know, the idea of five launches, say you had five Delta four heavy launches from ULA. Um, those are almost $400 million a piece. Yeah, and and that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, you're gonna spend two billion dollars just to send fuel up to this thing. Yeah. Well, no, I mean when it's a reusable rocket and it costs you fifty million dollars to launch that. Sure. Um, now refueling that thing is a rounding error in the SLS budget. Yep. You know, it's yeah. not even a quarter million dollars. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so it's 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 tough to think about these new systems with the existing limits and architecture we have, but that's what reusability is all about. And that's why everybody is looking towards that now. Almost everybody. Yeah. Um, well, I take that back. SLS, those side boosters, they're still going to drag them out of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Bring them back. <laughs> yeah. And, and do back all that again. In the space so. shuttle days. Yeah. <laughs> you, just, you just can't let it go, can you, gentlemen? No. Yeah. Well, I want to know your your kind of final thoughts then on, um, you know, what you think will happen. I believe that this is the modern manifest destiny. I think that everything in our solar system and then beyond is as long as humanity can prevent driving itself into extinction, you know, with, well, and and I, I see those, they're not two separate things. You know, Mm -hmm. this is one big tough problem that we need to crack and it's all related. Absolutely. So I, I don't really don't believe in a one or the other, um, kind of path choosing as far as uh, whether or not to explore space and whether it makes sense. It's like, it's all related. You know, we're all going to got to take care of earth in order to build these crazy big rockets. And then let's go explore the solar system and let's just learn to stop screwing stuff up. You know, I liked what you said (laughs) earlier, even just philosophically about it's the difference in, you know, are we exploring or just kind of existing? Right. I mean, I think that's, that's the whole point is that we have to make that decision at some point individually, each in our own lives, but then also just as humanity, you know, are we alive or just breathing? Right. Are we exploring and innovating or just surviving? I think without human optimism, we, you know, we we wouldn't be here to look at history anymore. Right. Right. I mean, you you can't, um, I'm I'm trying to think of the right. uh, You hear that, Tony? No room for the cynics. Oh, man. (laughs) Just put me on the gateway. Just just leave me on the gateway. I'll sit there and watch you guys go. the the cynics and the skeptics in the end is what makes sure it all it all works. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one thing, guys. I, <laughs> I could I could promise you this. Whatever we're talking about right now, it, it where we end up is not gonna look anything like it. You know, we're sitting here yeah. talking about yeah, gateways and SLSs and 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 Falcon Nines. It, it, nothing. It's gonna it's not gonna look like that at all by the time we get wherever we're talking about. So I think the the most um kind of I don't, I don't know how to say this. The thing that is going to be the most astonishing is almost like like looking at the evolution of the hitchhiker through human history, right? The person catching a ride to wherever they're going, because I think this is an inevitability, right? It's going to happen. We are going to keep expanding and pushing outward into space. And so there was a time where, like you said, Tony, some of these things didn't exist. And so cars did not exist. And so the hitchhiker had to catch a ride 
on the back of somebody's horse or a train and then yeah. one day he's or then then a train right and then it's just somebody's personal automobile there will be a day where space flight is common enough that you've got the hitchhiker catching a ride into space because somebody's just got extra room that's right yeah. you know and i i think that there's going to be this evolution that's going to be something that we look back on maybe not in this generation but generations down the road we'll be able to look back on it and be like you remember how it used to be a thing you couldn't just go to space and some yep and some future steve jobs or Mark Zuckerberg is going to have an idea that they can use the infrastructure that's already there, the 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 launch systems, the gateways, the the transportation and and space stations, hotels, whatever it is, is already up there to make something themselves out using that infrastructure that has to do with space and humanity's exploration of the universe. So it's it, that's why I, I, I'm impressed with what Jeff, what Jeff Bezos says about that approach uh, because it enables humanity. It doesn't just make Elon Musk look great because I'm the first guy on Mars. He's setting the stage, I think, for a more, uh, for, for humanity to succeed in space. And that approach, I think, is the right one. That's why I like the gateway. Interesting topic today. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. Hans, thank you so much for coming on. Um, oh, are you guys still drinking we'll be beers? Seeing you. Oh, come on, man. We still got half an hour. Uh, well, let me just, let me just tell you, so you haven't been drinking beer then. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> you would have been on your second or third. I was going to, I was going to compliment you guys and say, you know, you guys really get smarter as you drink more, but I can see you weren't drinking more. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, I got to get out there because I'm dying to see the Wavelength Brewing Company. Um, our guest today was Hans Frederick Haas. He is the owner of the Wavelength Brewing Company at uh, located in, in near Carsdale, California, near OPT. They're all having to go there. If you're in the area Friday night, listen to a science talk and drink some good brews, man. It sounds like a great way to spend a Friday. I'll tell you that. So on behalf of my guests, uh, Hans and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk was produced by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California, in partnership with Deep Astronomy. Please send feedback and questions to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.